Greetings, film pals. I bid you welcome to The Cinematic Crypt, a movie podcast hosted by Movie John's Old Sport and Classic Coroner, Rosalie Kicks, me. Each episode, I travel six feet under and pry open a coffin of one of my favorite Hollywood corpses and perform a post-watch examination of one of their forgotten films. Lend me your ears and listen along as I summon the spirits of Hollywood's dearly departed and uncover your next favorite film from the grave. Before we descend into the crypt, I will begin with reading my obituary, a notice of what I have been up to since we last spent time together. Goblins and ghouls, I have some fantastic news to share with you this evening. Earlier this week, I was informed that the short slasher film that I co-wrote and co-directed with my film pal Katie McBrown will have its premiere at Joe Bob Briggs Jamboree this Friday night under the stars at the Mahoning Drive-In. You may recall in a previous episode when I said that having it premiere at the drive-in would be an absolute dream. So learning of our acceptance is truly magical, and I can't even express into words the amount of excitement I feel. If you will be making the trek to the Jamboree, don't be a stranger. Come say hi to Katie and I. There are many that won't be able to be there that night, but I know they shall be there in spirit. And don't fret, my little crypt dwellers. I will be sure to report back on the evening's events in the next Cinematic Crypt episode. Mwah. Regarding Gulardi show, there's a telegram. See, this Clint's got some money. Right away, I hate him. What is that? Does this program go to Parma? What is that? All right, regarding Goulardi's show, same stinks. Show good, knock the nut. Written by the adults. All right. Seems to me an adult could write a better telegram than that, right? Hey, boy, magic disappeared. Wait a minute, I want to show you this. Goblins and ghouls, you just heard the voice of Goulardi, a horror host who hailed from the creeptastic Cleveland, Ohio. Crypt dwellers, before we get to our main attraction, let's spend some time in the cemetery, shall we? Let's pay respects to horror hosts from days gone by in a segment I've entitled Grave Time. This evening, we shall visit the gravesite of the groovy Goulardi. Portrayed by disc jockey Ernie Anderson in the summer of 1963, everyone wanted to keep cool with the ghoul. Ernie served as the horror host of Shock Theater at WJW-TV, Channel 8, and aired on Friday evenings. He would later add an early Saturday morning movie program, which was entitled Laurel, Goulardi, and Hardy. Unlike his shock theater show that primarily showed sci-fi and horror, his Saturday program had a comedic focus that showed Laurel and Hardy shorts. Dear Mr. Goulardi, like so many Clevelanders, we enjoy Channel 8's science fiction movies. Can you believe there's somebody that enjoys these movies? He says, please try to be less obtrusive. Thanks. 
And then he's got this fancy signature. 2903 Hampshire Road, Cleveland 18, Ohio. Stevie Babes, take a shot of that note. This is important. Stevie, do me a favor. Next time you write me a note, try to be less obtrusive, will you, baby? Hey, next week, oh, tomorrow, yes, on Masterpiece Theater, The Island of Lost Souls. Can you believe that? Oh, here it is. Born in Lawrence, Massachusetts, he would later become the number one DJ in Rhode Island. Ernie would find his way to Cleveland in 1958, where he was an announcer at WHK Radio until he was forced by management to become a freelancer as they did not approve of his offbeat music choices, such as Purple People Eater. He would land a gig on WJWTV8 by hosting a morning movie show entitled Ernie's Place. He was not, however, content on being just an ordinary host and would often perform zany skits. In the winter of 1962, WJW decided to show old horror flicks on Fridays and called on Ernie to be the host. He was initially reluctant for two reasons. One, they wanted him to do the show live, and secondly, they requested that he play the character Ordinary. There was a contest held for his host name, which the name Goulardo won, but being a self-described madcap beatnik, Ernie ended up changing it to Goulardi. The station management quickly backed off of Goulardi when they saw the audience numbers were so good. He sported a wacky appearance, unlike some of our other hosts who portrayed themselves as mad scientists, vampires, or creatures of the night. Goulardi was basically a hipster of sorts. He sported a long lab coat covered with slogan buttons, horn-rimmed sunglasses with a missing lens, a fake beard and mustache, and numerous messy, awkwardly perched wigs. It was not surprising to find him often wearing outlandish attire such as a faucet atop of his head or a hat that was decorated with Christmas ornaments. He was also often joined by his stuffed pet raven, which he named Oxnard. The TV crew would shine a key light on his face at a most unusual angle to give off a spooky effect and shot his face either close or extremely close up, which was often broadcast through an undulating oval. People were digging this eccentric ghoul who managed to create his own world in which phones didn't ring, they would knock. There were ads for Ghoulade and the tragedy of Ghoulius Caesar was considered literature. There were even Goulardisms that were created, such as Kniff, which essentially was the word Fink spelled backwards. Other common phrases used by Goulardi included stay sick, turn blue, and you wouldn't believe it. As for the program itself, he would often interrupt the films he was showing with shouts, exclaiming things like, what a dog, or what a bomb. He would often mock the quality of the flicks as well, saying things such as, if you want to watch a movie, don't watch this one. Goulardi would also feature music on his program, including many hip tunes for the time, such as Dwayne Eddy's Desert Rat, Eddie Blues by Eddie Cochran, and MG's Green Onions. Similar to the cool ghoul Zachary, who I featured on a previous Gravetime segment in episode 25, Goulardi would also put himself in the movies that he was showing, 
One of these cameos that was well regarded was when Goulardi appeared in the 1940 flick, One Million BC, in which he went up to a cave dweller eating a hunk of meat and said, cool it, don't eat that stuff. I'll take you around the corner and get you a pizza. Goblins and ghouls, I mean, come on, who doesn't like pizza? Not all of Goulardi's segments were a hit, though. In particular, his weekly Parma Place bit, which was a soap opera satire named for a Cleveland suburb. Ernie played a muckraker, Jerry Craigle, whereas the residents of Parma all wore white socks, ate cheese whiz sandwiches, and tried to keep up constantly with neighbors by increasing the number of pink flamingos on their lawns. As you can imagine, this caused quite the stir with the residents of Parma, and it was promptly canceled as many saw it as an insult to their Polish heritage. It was said by someone that worked on the show that station management lived in daily fear as to what Gallardi might say or do next on the air, mainly because he was live. He would later be known for his irreverent personality. Upon doing my research about Gulardi, I believe what fascinated me about him the most is that he may have had a short stint as a horror host, but his influence on viewers was far-reaching. There was apparently a Time Magazine article in 1963 that claimed juvenile crime dropped by 35% during the airing of his show. I attempted to search for this article, but was unable to uncover it on the internets. I also learned, though, that there was a local restaurant known as Manners in which featured Goulardi drinks, such as a Goulardi milkshake, which was blue and green and guaranteed to make you sick. <laughs> Goulardi received so much fan mail that he had to hire a 17-year-old kid named Fred to help him open it all. I must add here, my goblins and ghouls, this particular situation is my absolute dream, as I love to receive mail, and as a reminder, I will always write back. Of course, much like the kooky ghoul himself, the letters he received were anything but ordinary. Here's a sample. Dear Goulardi, we love you. You're so different. Drop dead. Here's something that doesn't work. Hatefully. David Jones, age 10. Gallardi would receive all types of gifts from fans, such as fake bloody hands, a dog skull, and a genuine dead bat. Someone even sent him a live snake. Some of the homemade gifts he would show on air and then proceed to blow them up with firecrackers, which he referred to as boom booms. This, of course, caused quite the concern with parents, as firecrackers were often part of many of Goulardi's bits, which led to children wanting to recreate the fun themselves. By early 1964, Goulardi began to lose appeal with viewers, which led many to believe he may have just been a summer fad, to the delight of many parents. He tried to take a more satirical approach and started poking fun at government politics in an attempt to reach more adults, but nothing seemed to stick. By the fall of 1966, it was reported in the Cleveland Plain Dealer that he would be quitting and joining a friend Tim Conway in Hollywood, expressing that he was tired from fighting with station management. Goulardi may not be a household name to many, but he became rather big in Hollywood from TV announcing and would go on to become one of the highest paid. 
Many may recognize his voice from ABC TV as he was the person inviting viewers to stay tuned for the love boat and was also featured in countless commercials. He would inevitably become known as Goulardi Love Boat Anderson. Saturday, the love boat just might sink. That's entertainment. It's a Titanic two-hour spectacular when Barbie Benton, David Birney, the Rovers Audra Lindley, Lola Falana, Dick Martin, and Donna Mills sail unawares into the funniest ocean disaster ever. Hello. I thought we might have a little chat. Goodbye. Is that little enough for you? Is this the big kiss-off for the love boat? He would, however, reprise his role as Goulardi once again for an anniversary show in 1988 for WJW-TV, celebrating 25 years of Friday nights. He would share the screen with the current horror host at the time, Big Chuck Shadowski and Little John. His final appearance as Goulardi would be, however, in 1991 on an episode of Joe Bob Briggs' Drive-In Theater. Ernie would unfortunately die of cancer on February 6th, 1997. Some of the most fascinating things I learned about Goulardi, there's a Goulardi Fest, which is still happening to this day in Cleveland, Ohio. Apparently, too, I was the last to learn that he is in fact the father of Paul Thomas Anderson, aka PTA, the renowned film director. I know we don't speak much about the living on this program, my goblins and ghouls. However, PTA is one of my favorite living and breathing directors creating films today. I think it is safe to say that Goulardi's anti-authority attitude definitely rubbed off not just on his son Paul, but many of us creeps. Unfortunately, there is not much footage of Goulardi that has survived. Therefore, he will have to live on in our memories of those that watch the program many moons ago. <laughs> It's going to be a good night. So cool it. Oh. I love it. It don't work anymore. Come on. Cool it. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. I got a, I got a thing you won't believe. When the cooler goes, don't work. We're in good shape. And now our feature presentation. All right, film pals. Time to grab your cape and get comfortable with a cocktail. It is time for our regularly scheduled spooky program. Follow me, but watch your step as you descend down to the cinematic crypt. <laughs> Today's episode will mark the first entry in my new series, Crafty, Cunning, Conniving Charlatans. Through the course of this series, I will examine four films featuring a charlatan who is up to some fraudulent, phony, and deceiving tricks. This evening, I shall uncover and examine the 1945 Fritz Lang noir thriller, Scarlet Street, starring Edward G. Robinson, Van Durier, and tonight's corpse of interest, Joan Bennett. I want you to meet an actress whose career has spanned some of the most memorable years in show business. Joan Bennett has appeared in more than 70 pictures, from Bulldog Drummond in 1929 to The Eyes of Charles Sand, made in 1972. 
She's also appeared in numerous stage and television productions. Today, though, it's her family and her children and her 12 grandchildren who are at the center of her attention. And as you'll agree, when you meet her, that's an enviable place to be. Ladies and gentlemen, Miss Joan Bennett. Joan Geraldine Bennett was born February 27, 1910, in Palisades, New Jersey, daughter of Richard Bennett and Adrian Morrison, and the youngest of three daughters. Joan would often go by Joni and stood at five foot three and a half inches tall and would rack up 97 credits across film and TV. She came from a long line of actors dating back to the 18th century. In fact, both of her parents were successful stage actors, so it would only make sense that she would follow in their footsteps with an acting career. Crypt dwellers, you may also be familiar with her famed sister, film actor Constance Bennett. Joan would make her first stage appearance at the young age of four years old and would make her film debut in 1916 at the age of six in the film The Valley of Decision, a movie which her father starred in and shared the screen with many of the Bennett clan. She would then go on to be in another film with her father in 1923, The Eternal City, in which she portrayed a page boy. She would then not appear in any other films until five years later. In between her hiatus, she married Jack Marion Fox, who was 26 at the time, while she was only 16. Unfortunately, the two did not find happiness, as Fox suffered from heavy drinking. They did, however, have a child together, and in February of 1928, she gave birth to a baby girl named Adrienne. The couple would soon after divorce in the summer of 1928, leaving Joan as a single parent and no choice but to turn back to acting. This was not a career that she had particularly wanted for herself. But after being left with a child to support, she didn't feel she had much of an option. Joan, let me ask you about your marvelous career. You've made a total of 78 films mm. uh, from the beginning. Uh, you've played several different kind of parts. You were the ingenue in films like Little Women, the more sultry woman in her 40s in, in films such as Scarlet Street. Right. Later on, you changed your character again and became the perfect mother in films like The Father of the Bride. And Father's Little Dividend. Yes. How did you avoid, as happens to so many actresses, becoming typecast as a certain certain woman, certain type of well, person. Well, when I was a blonde, <laughs> and I was a blonde to begin with, and when I went to Hollywood from New York stage, I, Sam Goldwyn said, everybody's very blonde out here, go and bleach your hair, and I was delighted because my mother would never let me bleach it. Mm -hmm. So what happened was that I was really in new parts until I did a picture called Trade Winds with Tay Garnett directing and Freddie March and Ralph Bellamy. And I had to put on a disguise, which was the dark wig. Mm -hmm. And after that, the parts became quite different than the blonde ingenue parts. The things that I did with Bing Crosby were ingenue type. And then as I became older, they chose me to play with Spence Tracy, who was one of my favorite actors. Mm -hmm and play Liz Taylor's mother in Father of the Bride and Father's Little Dividend. And uh, then as I became older, I think there were parts that I didn't find too divine, mm -hmm. so I went back to New York. Joan would find that her career essentially had three phases. 
first as a captivating blonde ingenue, then as a sensational brunette femme fatale, and lastly as a doting wife and mother figure. She would appear in the film Power alongside Alan Hale and Carol Lombard, who you may recall Crypt Dwellers was featured in episode 14. Joan played a small part in the film, but it was the foot in the door that she needed. After this, she would land a starring role in the 1929 flick, Bulldog Drummond, in which she shared the top billing with her co-star, Ronald Coleman. She would do three more films before the year was out, one of which has definitely piqued my interest, as I have never seen it, but it's the 1929 film entitled Three Live Ghosts. Not sure what it's about, but the term ghosts in the title makes it promising. Mwah. Joan started to make a name for herself, not just with moviegoers, but critics as well. Between 1930 and 1931, she would appear in nine films. I am probably most familiar with her films of the 40s, though, in which she worked with Fritz Lang on three different pictures, including Manhunt, The Woman in the Window, and Scarlet Street. This dawned her as the queen of film noir femme fatales, which frankly, I find she was perfect for these types of roles, with her raspy voice, sultry eyes, and her brunette locks. She went on record saying about her femme fatale roles, few people remember good women, they don't forget bad girls. She would make a total of five films with Fritz, more than any other American actor, as many disliked working with him. She, on the other hand, found him to be one of the greatest directors in the business and was fascinated with his process while making a motion picture. Sadly, Joan's career in film would come to a halt in 1951 after her husband at the time, Walter Wenger, shot her agent in a jealous rage. This resulted in a scandal that she was unable to recover from. She would fade away but would re-emerge in the 60s when she started popping up on television shows, most notably the show Dark Shadows, in which she was one of three cast members who appear from beginning until the end of the series, being credited as appearing in 391 episodes. What will you make all right, Carolyn? Mrs. Paul Stoddard. I am not Mrs. Paul Stoddard. I'm Elizabeth Collins Stoddard. Now, Carolyn, will you please leave us alone? No, Mother. I can think of no argument that will convince me to let you stay. I will not leave. Carolyn. Why can't the three of us... There's no reason. The show was kind of interesting, too, as it was apparently an American Gothic soap opera. Sounds like it might be up our alley, goblins and ghouls. I read that she was offered a role in the 1985 Cocoon, which I discussed in my last episode, and featured the corpse of interest, Donna Michi. Apparently, Don was cited as wanting to reunite with Joan, as she was one of his former leading ladies in a picture. Initially, many thought she turned down the role due to poor health. However, it was later discovered it was her husband who convinced her not to take the role, as he felt it was beneath her to work for Opie Taylor or Richie Cunningham. I would have loved to have seen Joan featured in Cocoon, especially in the elderly home montage. Just saying. 
When I am conducting my research, it often thrills me to find out interesting facts about the actors that I admire from Hollywood's bygone era. In this case, with Joan, I learned that she had several hobbies, including interior decorating, gardening, dog breeding, and collecting miniature model horses. I wonder if Joan would have been fond of my doll collection. What do you think? Goblins and ghouls. Oh, Chatty Cathy, oh, Chatty Cathy, you're the Tell's famous talking doll. We pull the ring, and you say 11 different things. Let's play house. I was also quite fascinated to learn what she had done to gossip columnist Hedda Hopper. Apparently, Joan was a popular topic of disdain for Hopper. So on Valentine's Day in 1950, Joan sent her a little gift. A skunk with a note that read, You stink. <laughs> I also quite enjoyed learning about her radio career. She appeared on the airwaves from the 1930s to the 1950s on such programs like Lux Radio Theater, Duffy's Tavern, and one of my favorites, Suspense. And now with statement of Mary Blake and the performance of Miss Joan Bennett, Autolite hopes once again to keep you in Suspense. I found myself at the far end of a long corridor, the length of it stretching before me in a winding pattern, the walls of it a thick, impregnable cement. There were no windows, only a small opening high on the wall to my right. Through this, a single shaft of light fell into a pattern which told me there were iron bars on that one small window. At first, it seemed that I was alone in this place. I stood huddled and afraid, unable to move. Somehow, I had the feeling that soon I would not be alone. In her 1970 memoir, The Bennett Playbill, she decided to reserve a section to provide facts of her life that were indeed true, such as she loved peanut butter, knocked on wood for good luck, made a great hollandaise sauce, loved fresh flowers, hated turnips, slept in a nightgown, and favored shocking colors of pink and green. Over the course of her life, Joan would marry four times and have four children. Something that I found that was noted several times was that she became the youngest grandmother in Hollywood at the age of 39, taking the title away from Marlene Dietrich, who was said to have dropped her a line thanking Joan for taking some of the heat off of her. Her last film appearance would be as Madame Blanc in the 1977 cult horror Dario Argento's Suspiria. After that, she would appear in a few TV movies and then stop acting completely in 1982. Joan passed away on December 7, 1990 at the age of 80 due to heart failure at her home in Scarsdale, New York. She is interred in Pleasant Valley Cemetery in Lyme, Connecticut with her parents. Well, hello, Damon. Hello there. Hello. Well, this is the first time I've ever agreed with you, Jane Wayne. Thank you. I find the painter even more fascinating than her painting. What's she like? Mona Lisa without a smile. Something hidden. Sometimes it seems as if she were two people. Maybe it's like falling in love, I guess. You know, first you see someone and, and it keeps growing and you can't think of anyone else. That's interesting. Well, the way I look at things, that's all art is. 
every painting, if it's any good, is a love affair. I never heard anyone talk like that before. Oh, well, uh, there aren't many people you can talk to this way. So you keep it to yourself. You walk around with everything bottled up. Yeah, that's right. That's the way it is with me, too. You gotta have money to make money. Capital. Now, the boys at the Acme Garage have cut me in on a half interest if I can put up the money. How much do they want? Oh, three or four thousand. Yikes. Well, for cat's sake, I'm not talking about chicken feed. Use your imagination. Ah. Uh, Johnny! How long does it take you to paint a picture? Sometimes a day, sometimes a year. You can't tell. It has to grow. Of course. It's a matter of feeling. You know how, how feeling grows? It's like, like falling in love, I guess. The 1945 film noir Scarlet Street was penned by Dudley Nichols and directed by Fritz Lang. This is a rather bleak story about two criminals that take advantage of an unsuspecting middle-aged man. It was based on a French novel entitled La Chienne, meaning the bitch, which was also turned into a 1931 film directed by Jean Renoir, as well as being previously performed on the stage. Fritz would go on to make another Renoir picture in 1954 entitled Human Desire, Notoriously, Renoir disliked both. Something to note, goblins and ghouls, is that Scarlet Street reunited the principal cast, Edward G. Robinson, Joan Bennett, and Dan Duryea, as they all worked together previously on a Lang picture in 1944, entitled The Woman in the Window. The film opens at a celebration, a celebration that frankly includes characters that I feel I later see in The Hudsucker Proxy, a 1994 film from the Coen brothers and Sam Raimi. If you haven't seen that one, Crypt Dwellers, check it out. So there's this party going on celebrating the career of Christopher Cross, played by Edward G. Robinson. Chris is a cashier for a clothing retailer and has been with the company for 25 years. For his service, he is being presented with a gold watch from his penny-pinching boss, who ends up leaving the shindig early to climb into a car with a young blonde. When we are introduced to Chris, he's presented as a meek individual that seems to have a twinkle in his eye, though, pining for more. He muses with his colleague, about what it would be like to be loved by a young woman after he witnesses his boss hopping into the vehicle, obviously stepping out on his wife. Yet, it's easy to see Chris seems to be afraid of everything, especially when he's afraid to even take a puff of a cigar. After the party begins to break up, Chris heads out with his coworker, Charlie. One can tell a lot about the character of Chris in this scene, as he refuses to allow Charlie to walk to the bus stop alone, as Charlie does not have an umbrella, and it is pouring rather heavily. So Chris volunteers to share his. <sighs> Nothing like the smell of spring. Which way do you go, Chris? Well, I guess I'll take the east side subway. Gets me to Brooklyn a little quicker. Hey, you, you haven't got an umbrella. No, I'll take you to your bus. Oh, no, no, that's out of your way. Oh, I don't mind walking, you know, fresh air, spring. <laughs> hey, I'm a little drunk. <laughs> During their walk, Chris also volunteers to wait at the bus stop with Charlie so that he doesn't get soaking wet. 
He also opens up to Charlie about his dream of being a great painter. I recall the first time seeing this movie, Goblins and Ghouls, and having a moment of feeling completely terrified. What if I were to never have the opportunity to pursue my dreams full-time, and instead found myself in the business of insurance for 25 years, receiving maybe a gold pendant, while always trying to scrape time together for my true passion? This is a movie that I love, but I also feel such a loathing for it, as it makes me so incredibly sad. Say, uh, Charlie, uh, you suppose J.J. is running around with that young lady? It looks that way. I, I, I wonder what it's like. What, Chris? Well, to be, to be loved by a young girl like that. You know, nobody ever looked at me like that. Not even when I was young. Yes, when we're young, we have dreams that never pan out, but we go on dreaming. When I was young, I wanted to be an artist. You know, I dreamt I was going to be a great painter someday. <laughs> so, <laughs> I'm a cashier. Do you still paint? Yeah, every Sunday. Well, that's one way to kill time. You know, Sunday's one day of the week that I don't like. I never know what to do with myself. Well, why don't you come over tomorrow and see me? Thanks, Chris. I'll do that. After he departs from Charlie, Chris gets a bit twisted around in Greenwich Village, and from a distance, he witnesses a man strike a woman. Of course, Chris being the good Samaritan that he is, dashes over without hesitation. Upon approaching the woman, who we learn is Catherine Kitty March, our corpse of interest, Joan Bennett. Chris uses his umbrella to knock her attacker unconscious. He informs her that he will go find the policeman, as he had just bumped into one a few blocks away. What Chris does not realize is that the man he knocked out is actually Kitty's boyfriend, Johnny, played deviously by Dan Durier. Upon Chris returning to the scene, he finds that Johnny has fled. Where'd they go? In that direction. What does he look like? I don't know. I didn't see his face. He took $15. He didn't believe it was all I had, so he began pushing me around. Then this gentleman ran in and knocked him down. Mm. That's right, officer. He was right there. I couldn't hold him. He got up and ran. Wait here. Come on, let's get out of here. Well, we have to wait for the officer. I don't want to get my name in the newspaper. Do you? Well, the newspaper? Sure. We'll have to go down to the station house and make a complaint. And every time they make an arrest, they send detectives to your house for weeks. Oh, it's a nuisance. Mm. Won't you take me home? Uh, why, yes. Uh, well, uh, sure, that is, uh, well, if you think that... Uh... Chris offers to walk Kitty home, and upon their arrival, he notices a bar underneath her building and asks if she would like to get a cup of coffee. You can tell Chris is completely enamored with her, that when she states they should have cocktails instead, he doesn't decline, despite feeling he has consumed more alcohol than he has in the past year. While sipping their drinks, Chris opens up to her about his loveless marriage, his dreams, and while Kitty shares that she is an actor. Cheers, Chris. Uh, oh, uh, uh, Miss March. Uh... Kitty. Yes, Miss, uh, I mean, uh, Kitty. Uh, well, uh, look, uh, Kitty, uh, since I'm old enough to be your father, I... You're not so old. You don't think so? Well, you're not a boy, you're just, uh, mature. I like mature people. Well, wh what I wanted to say was, uh, you shouldn't be alone in the street so late at night. 
I was coming home from work. You work this late? Mm-hmm. What do you do? Guess. You're an actress. Oh, you are clever. Now that you know all about me, tell me about yourself. What do you do? I? I, uh... Well, you see... No, no, don't tell me. You work in a bank? <laughs> no. Well, let's see. Greenwich Village is full of artists. I meet you in Greenwich Village. You must be an artist, right? Well, I, uh... Yes, yes, I, I paint. Of course, you're a painter. I love paintings. To think I took you for a cashier. You know those art galleries on Fifth Avenue? The prices they charge. I saw one little picture that cost $50,000. They called it a... a Cezanne. Cezanne. Oh, he was a great French painter. I like to own that painting. You would? Mm. For $50,000? Well, you, you can't put any price on masterpieces like that. They're worth... Uh, well, whatever you can afford to pay for them. Chris leaves that conversation infatuated with his newfound friend, while Kitty stumbles up the steps to her apartment with only one thing on her mind, Johnny. The next day, Chris's co-worker stops by, and we learn that Chris hasn't even slept a wink. It is easy to see that Chris doesn't receive visitors often, nor does he live a comforting home life. He shares with Charlie his marital situation to Adele. It started with him renting a spare room and then being the lonely sort, as well as the prospect of saving $4 per week if they were to just simply live together. He could then use that money for paints, is how he rationalized all of it. Fast forward, they've now been married for five years, despite her idolization of her dead husband. A former police officer that died trying to save a woman that was committing suicide by jumping from a bridge into a river. This was just one of the moments in which my heart was breaking for Chris. While Charlie is there, he shows off some of his paintings, in particular the one he has painted of the flower that Kitty gave him early that morning, of corpse. This nice moment is ruined when Adele shows her face. It was quickly realized that she was not my cup of tea. Where are your paintings, Chris? Uh, they're out in the hall. Uh, would you like to see what I did today? Yes, I'd like to. Where did you find a, a flower like that? Hmm. You mean, you see this when you look at that? Well, yes. Uh, that is, I, I, I sort of feel it. Uh, you see, when I look at that flower, I see someone... Isn't anything private in this house? Uh, I'm sorry, Adele. We better get out of here. All right, Adele. The film then cuts to Kitty's apartment. Johnny has stopped by and is in need of funds for a shady business deal. He spots a letter that Kitty received from Chris. This is where the idea is sparked. Kitty, who believes Chris is a renowned painter, is convinced by Johnny to play Chris for a fool and swindle him for his money. If you want more heat in this apartment, miss, you'll have to call a janitor. <laughs> you idiot. How come you're holding out on me, baby? Oh, stop talking about Saturday night. I'm not talking about Saturday night. I'm talking about this. 
Sounds like a schoolboy trying to make a date. You must be robbing the cradle. <laughs> What's so funny? You are. He's old enough to be my father. That's the old fellow who came to my rescue Saturday night. My hero. No kidding. See? You were too tight to remember anything. If I hadn't told the cop to go in the wrong direction, he'd have picked you up. This the old fellow who butted in? Mm -hmm. The painter? He's rich and famous and very sweet, too, Johnny. He doesn't pull any rough stuff like you. Well, I had a chance to clean up in a crap game. All I needed was 50 bucks. And what did you show up with? 15, for cat's sake. That's all I had. Besides, you kept me waiting two hours in the rain. And then you gave me a dirty look. I didn't give you a dirty look. Listen, any girl who waits two hours in the rain for a guy is gonna give him a dirty look. <sighs> Trouble with you, baby, is you have no imagination. What do you expect me to do? I expect you to use your brains. But for cat's sake, this chump is crazy about you. This is a setup. He's in the big money, isn't he? You said 50,000 a picture. She is, of course, quite unsure of all this. She doesn't feel right playing with someone's emotions like that. Well, that is until her roommate and her have a bit of a spat, and she decides to take Johnny's advice and write a return letter to Chris. They inevitably make plans to meet up, where Kitty lays it out to Chris, a predicament that she has found herself in. The truth is, I'm in a jam. You, Kitty? Oh, you probably guessed it. I'm broke. Even this dress belongs to Millie. I can't pay my rent. Uh, well, how much is it? Oh, forget it. I shouldn't have told you. It'll spoil your day. Oh, but Kitty... I'll get out of it somehow. I couldn't take anything from you, Chris. No. Uh, yes, I, I mean... No, no, I couldn't. I've never taken money from a man, and I'm not going to now. And I'm not going to spoil our friendship. Oh, but Kitty, uh... I couldn't pay you back. Oh. Chris, maybe I could pay you back. If you put up the money for a studio apartment, then I'd have a place to live and you could paint there. Don't you see? You could paint my portrait. What's the matter? Don't you want to paint my picture? There's something I've got to tell you, Kitty. What? I deceived you. I lied. I'm a married man, Kitty. Why didn't you tell me, Chris? You know I'm not the kind of girl to run around with a married man, don't you? You know what you said about meeting someone, how you begin to like them, and, and you can't think about anybody else? You should have told me you had a wife, Chris. Yes, but I'm not in love with her, Kitty. Well, you married her. Well, I was lonely. I, I, I couldn't stand my loneliness. Poor Chris. Well, then you're not angry with me? I suppose I ought to be, but I'm not. Not with you, Chris. I'm going to let you help me. Well, how much do you need? $500. Wow. When she says, I'm going to let you help me... This scene is magnificent, in my opinion, as it showcases what tremendous actors both Eddie and Joan were, two masters at work. I also find that the characters here are both artists in their own way, Eddie painting a picture, so to speak, that he works as an artist, while Kitty clearly is working the magic of her con. 
knowing just exactly how to push Chris's buttons by offering to allow him to paint her, but also using her apartment as a hideaway to work. There is a part of me that gets so sad for Chris, but then there's this other part of me that finds the situation at this point in time to be so exciting for him. Sometimes, as I mentioned before, my little crypt dwellers, it's nice to live in a fantasy, to live in a dream world for a bit. This is especially confirmed when Chris arrives home and we witness Adele on a radio rampage. She's just extremely no. Despite her having insurance money from her dead husband, she refuses to use this money and then complains to Christopher about her lack of a decent radio, when she could just inevitably go out and buy one herself. When Adele steps out to visit the neighbor so that she can listen to her precious radio program, since, you know, she doesn't have a working one for herself, Chris sneaks into her bedroom to look at the bonds tucked away in her nightstand, money certificates that could be used for Kitty. Unfortunately, Adele interrupts his scheming as the neighbor's radio conked out. I love how Chris recovers from this incident with the talk of murder. Christopher! What are you doing? I was, uh, I was looking for the paper. A blind? Oh. Well, uh, didn't you, uh, didn't you like the radio? It went off right in the middle of a program. I wouldn't have such a radio. Hey, uh, did you read this? Read what? Uh, this murder in Queens. A man killed his wife with a window weight, put a body in the trunk and shifted to California. Uh, it says here... I've read the paper, thank you. He didn't get away with it, did he? He'll go to the chair, as he should. Yeah. man hasn't got a chance with these New York detectives. Can't you put that paper down and do the dishes? Speaking of murder and corpses, I think it is time, crypt dwellers, for our spooky intermission of sorts. Let's pay a visit to the morgue, shall we? To chat cadavers with my fellow classic coroner, Dr. Ashley Jane Carruthers. Together, we shall slice open and examine character actor Edward G. Robinson, an actor who specialized in playing eccentric and unusual people. Let's all go to the mark. Let's all go to the mark. Let's all go to the mark to get ourselves a Good evening, Dr. Carruthers. Did I catch you at a bad time? Oh, why, hello there. Oh, pardon the lab. Science can get messy. Yeah, it does seem that you have quite the experiment brewing there. I hope, I, I hope I'm not interrupting you. No, not at all. Please, come in. Come in. Well, you'll have to let me know how this experiment turns out. I'm always fond of hearing about the results. Well, I will be unveiling the results of my current experiments this coming spooky season. Once we're finally free from this sweltering summer sun and you'll be the first to know very good yeah i'm quite sick of the sun i'm much more of a nighttime person me too so who do we have on the docket today dr carruthers well today we have a real superstar the one 
the only Edward G. Robinson. That Robin sings just like I feel. They look, there's a pair of them up there. They're building their nest. Say, where'd you learn that? Oh, <laughs> when I was a kid. <laughs> yeah, I bet I haven't done that in 40 years. Yeah, I feel like a kid myself today. Sold any pictures lately? Why don't you paint my picture? I'd like to. Could I bring my easel to your apartment? Oh, I'm afraid my girlfriend wouldn't like that. How long does it take you to paint a picture? Well, uh, sometimes a day, sometimes a year. You can't tell. It has to grow. I never knew paint could grow. Well, feeling grows. You know, that's the important thing, feeling. Well, now you take me. Well, nobody ever taught me how to draw, so I just put a line around what I feel when I look at things. Yeah, I see. It's like, uh, uh, it's like falling in love, I guess. You know, first you see someone and then it keeps growing and until you can't think of anyone else. That's interesting. So I know I say this quite often, but this is one of my favorite corpses. Eddie is in so many memorable roles. Oh, he's one of my favorites too. He's such a character, unforgettable. And do you know what G stands for, right? No, I do not. Grandy. <laughs> you really do love that term. I do. All right, well, let's not waste any time. Let's slice him open. Why, yes. Scalpel, please. We shall begin with discussing five characteristics that made this particular corpse a character. Number one, his memorable catfish-like mug. Number two, him being known for his tough guy roles. Number three, his distinctive snarling voice. Number four, his short and solid stature. And number five, him being regarded as a renaissance man. What a great character corpse we have on our hands today, Doctor. Not sure if you knew this, but his birth name was actually Emmanuel Goldenberg, and he ended up changing his name to Edward G. Robinson, and often went by Eddie or Manny, and many thought, I guess, that he chose his stage name after an actor he admired, but he later claimed it was really just he was trying to keep his birth initials, and he wasn't sure how he decided on Robinson, but later wished he chose a shorter name, which I understand because, you know, before I became Kix, my name used to be Eurysense. And you can only imagine the spelling woes that went along with that. I bet. In Eddie's case, I could see signing an autograph. Your wrist is going to get tired. For sure. I'm personally quite fond of the name Eddie. Well, you know, that's interesting. I didn't know that. Eddie. Well, it's a classic name. I know a few Eddies. A wise poet from the Juicy Fruits once sang... We'll remember you forever, Eddie. And this guy is no exception. He is someone that folks that, you know, don't watch a lot of Golden Age Hollywood movies, they still recognize his face. Oh, definitely. And he's another, you know, character corpse that he just pops up mm -hmm. out of nowhere. Sometimes I'm watching something 
and he may have not gotten like top billing so he surprises you when he shows up yeah well he was born in romania but made his way to the u.s at the age of 10 and spent the majority of his childhood and life in new york's lower east side ah romania home to our beloved count dracula I wonder if they were related. Quite possibly. I'm going to assume that they're cousins. Me too. Jeepers. Which you may remember that phrase from Scarlet Street. I do. Said quite a number of times. Oh yeah. Eddie had 117 credits to his name. And I really need to know, what were your, or what are your top three Eddie roles? That's a great question. Um, I'd have to say my favorite is in Double Indemnity because of my theory that his Barton Keyes character is actually in love with Walter Neff for some reason. Don't ask me. I don't know why. But anyway, he has the most romantically charged lighting of his cigarette scene ever captured on screen. And I just love his character in that one. What's on your mind? That broken leg. The guy had a broken leg. What are you talking about? I'm talking about Dietrichson. He had accident insurance, didn't he? Yeah. And then he broke his leg, didn't he? So what? And he didn't put in a claim. Why didn't he put in a claim? Why? What are you driving at? Walter, I had dinner two hours ago. And it's stuck halfway. Little man of yours is acting up again, huh? There's something wrong with the Dietrichson case. Why, because he didn't file a claim? Maybe he just didn't have time. Maybe he just didn't know that he was insured. Another favorite is 1946 The Stranger, which is so great because it's got Eddie and Orson. I mean, what a duo. And when I watch it, I can't believe that it came out in 1946 because it's pretty famous for being the first film to show footage from the Holocaust. And it's very anti-fascism and anti-Nazi, so it's a really bold political statement wrapped up in this kind of noir world, um, especially considering that at that point, World War II had barely ended. And when you add to it the fact that Eddie's family actually fled to America because of anti-Semitic attacks against them, we can only imagine how important it was for him to make that film. And I have to say my third favorite is honestly Scarlet Street, which we'll be discussing. How about you? What are your favorites? Those are really great choices. Uh, actually, you know, of course, I love his work with Fritz Lang. He, he's absolutely phenomenal in Scarlet Street. And another memorable role that he did with Fritz was the woman in the window. I'm not sure, have you seen that one? I haven't. It's been on my list for so long, but I have to check it out still. Yeah, because what's interesting, it actually has a lot of the same cast members from Scarlet Street, and they were only made like within a year of each other. Oh, okay. It's pretty cool. Uh, but my top Eddie performances are definitely, I too love him in Double Indemnity. I love how straight-laced Barton Keyes is and that he works as an investigator. Yeah. I never got that impression of the romantic relationship. However, now that you say it, 
I feel like I could totally see it. Rewatch it thinking about it, and it's just, it's pure romance. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's one of those films that I could put on any time. I, I really like it. Mm-hmm. And then I also love him in Key Largo as Johnny Rocco. He plays a gangster in that. And then the last one that I really enjoy him in, it's not so well known, but it's called Night Has a Thousand Eyes. And he actually plays a charlatan of sorts, which is the series we're doing right now. He plays a role, the name is Triton. And he's a phony stage mentalist of sorts, but he somehow ends up acquiring these like mystifying powers so he can like see into the future. And it starts to become problematic for him, actually, because he can like see people getting murdered. And obviously, trying to explain that to people, it can make you come off as kind of kooky. Yeah, it's actually, it's online out there, but I do think they are, I think Kino Lorber might be restoring it, which I'd love to pick up a copy because, you know, online. Yeah, I've never seen that. Yeah, you should check it out. So something that I found quite interesting in conducting my research was that despite him playing many murderous gangster type roles, he was actually extremely cultured and known for being sensitive. He was actually very quiet, had a huge passion for fine art. And I think this just goes to show how amazing of an actor Eddie was because people were always shocked by his demeanor, and that he would actually turn out to be nothing like he was portrayed on the silver screen. Yeah, I love when that happens. And to me, that's where talent really shines, when an actor can tackle roles that are nothing like themselves. And as a very sensitive and quiet person myself, I can imagine that he must have had to take a lot of time to you know, decompress after work each day because projecting an attitude and a personality that isn't your own is super tiring. So I can definitely understand how art would be a passion for him and something to recharge with. Yeah, definitely. I don't know if you read this. I found he was apparently supposed to be in Planet of the Apes. And I bring this up because a former character corpse that we recently dug up, Kim Hunter, she was in that movie and apparently eddie decided not to take the role due to the long hours he was i guess experiencing health issues at the time and obviously you may remember we discussed the heavy makeup that they had Mm -hmm. to wear and that was a huge factor in his decision and apparently though there's somewhere out there a screen test of him during like pre-production before he actually decided not to take the role. Hmm. Wow, interesting. I didn't know that. I would love to see that because I really wonder what he would have looked like. Yeah, me too. Now, have you ever seen the cartoon series Courageous Cat and Minute Mouse? No, I haven't. Well, I only recently discovered it, and there's some episodes, again, out there on the internet. But it was essentially a cartoon series created by Bob Kane, who is extremely well-known for creating Batman and Robin. Mm-hmm. Well, this show is like a spoof of that of sorts, and there so happened to be a villain in the series named Chauncey Flat Face Frog, <laughs> who was essentially based on Edward G. Robinson. 
Just saw a couple of suspicious-looking characters pass by. Is one of them a dumb-looking bloke wearing a cap? That's right, Chief. The other a little green runt wearing a derby? Uh-huh. A cigar in his kisser? Yeah, yeah, you know him, Chief? They're public nuisance number one and two. These characters not only will steal stuff that's nailed down, they'll steal the nails, too. Is there something you want me to do, Chief? Capture them? Capture the blinders and give them a taste of Alcatraz. Okay, Chief. When I'm on the job, justice will triumph. I'll bring back those scoundrels dead or alive. We're off! We're taking a trip abroad, say. Where do you suggest we go? Now, here's a delightful place. Sunny Italy. You'll find many interesting sights there. Ooh, how about the famous fountain at St. Peter's where everybody throws coins for luck? There must be a fortune at the bottom of that fountain. A fortune, eh? Very interesting. I don't know. It's just so funny to me. <laughs> uh, I love it. Imagine having a cartoon character modeled after you. Yeah, it makes me kind of wonder, like, what I would be drawn as. <laughs> like, if I was an animal of sorts. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. Who knows? Yeah. Because I, I kind of feel or wonder if... Because, yeah, I don't know if he was alive to see him portrayed as the frog, but if he was, like, what his thought would have been. Yeah, no kidding. There were other cartoon characters that were based on him, too, because he was just so iconic, especially in the gangster-type role. And I wasn't really huge into The Simpsons, but I kept reading that apparently the police chief was based on him. There was also a character in the Dick Tracy cartoon show as well. Okay, yeah. The voice of that Simpsons character, when I think about it, it really does play on that, you know, classic Edward G. Robinson kind of gangster voice. Except that the chief was kind of an uninformed dum-dum, and Edward G. Robinson was a very intelligent man. So I guess they were really only concerned with the voice. Yeah, I would agree. And I do feel even when Edward played gangster roles, they were rarely like dumb people. Yeah, exactly. You know, so I agree. It, it was probably just them more or less mimicking the voice. Mm -hmm. And, you know, speaking of, he actually spoke seven different languages, which wow. I was impressed with because I can barely speak one. <laughs> yeah, I did read that, and I agree. That's really impressive. And I must say, I love that one of the most, you know, imitated, typical, old-timey American gangster voices is really the voice of a very sensitive and intelligent immigrant whose first language was not even English. And I really love that. Totally agree with that. I came across this quote from him that I wanted to share with you as I feel it kind of relates to a similar discussion that we had about appearances and overall physique during my last visit to the morgue uh, when we sliced open Laird Crager. 
Eddie said, if I were just a bit taller and I was a little more handsome or something like that, I could have played all the roles that I have played and played many more. There's such a thing as a handicap, but you've got to be that much better as an actor. It kept me from certain roles that I might have had, but then it kept others from playing my roles. So I don't know if that's not altogether balanced. Hmm. Yep, that's Hollywood for you. It's obsession with stars fitting the mold of what they have deemed beautiful. Gross. Well, I'll tell you, if I were making a film, I would cast Eddie as the leading man over many of the handsome types who never ventured out of their comfort zones. I think that's what impresses me most about Scarlet Street is that when I watched this movie for the first time, it was kind of, I think, also the first time that I saw him be so emotive mm-hmm. and to be cast in a different type of role. Yeah, for sure. A sensitive character. Uh, it was interesting. and. Being that Edward in real life was so fond of collecting artwork and paintings, uh, he would actually often describe acting as painting. But instead, you're essentially creating an actor on the screen by starting with an external appearance, then adding or stripping away layers, is how he described it. It's interesting because the character in Scarlet Street has such a fondness of painting, too. It, I don't know if it's just coincidental that happened or if like Fritz Lang was like, no, I need to cast you because you'll understand. Yeah, that's interesting. But yeah, he took his work very seriously and he would often say that it was sitting around on set that he was paid for because when he acted, he felt he was doing it for free because he just loved it so much. Wow. I'm, I'm actually blown away by that painting description it's that's really beautiful and i totally get what he's saying he's he's a real artist yeah it it's quite incredible that he felt that way and it like i said it makes me appreciate scarlet street even more so and i read that he actually didn't really enjoy the role though as he felt it was very similar to woman in the window which i could kind of see after watching both of the films but yeah, I, I do wonder, though, if he secretly wanted to be a painter, like the character in Scarlet Street. Hmm. Well, it's too bad that he didn't like his role in this. I loved it. I thought it was quite complex and, you know, very sympathetic until up until the moment when he just snaps. But I love all the layers to his character. You know, I hope he was a hobbyist painter. I would have loved to see what he would come up with. Yeah, and before we get to how he went sleepies, I did want to mention something that I found so admiring. Eddie was apparently a very outspoken critic in regards to fascism and Nazism, and during the 30s and 40s, he apparently contributed to like a number of different funds and organizations like regarding like education and like helping people that were suffering from the war. Yeah, that's something I find really cool about him, and I love that. He's like a real human caring about other humans and doing what he could to contribute to help other people. So what does the coroner's report say about his death? Well, Robinson died of bladder cancer at the age of 79 in Los Angeles on January 26, 1973. 
His body then was flown to New York, where it was entombed in a crypt in a family mausoleum. Well, Eddie, it was so great spending time with you. I do hope that you go back to the most restful slumber. Yes, so do I, and I have a feeling, though, we might dig him up again at some point. I hope so. Well, time to tuck him in. Good night. <laughs> Classic. And now, on with the show. Welcome back, my goblins and ghouls. I hope you enjoyed that brief intermission to the morgue. We return for the conclusion of my examination of Scarlet Street, starring the corpse of interest, Joan Bennett. From here, things pick up rather quickly. Kitty finds herself an apartment, moves in, and Chris brings over all of his painting supplies. He starts to store his work at her place. All the while, Johnny continues to sniff around, causing turmoil and demanding additional funds for his schemes. One day, when he stops by, he gets the idea of taking some of Chris's portraits in an attempt to hawk them. Johnny starts to question whether Chris is an actual artist or a phony. He wants to put it to a test. He first goes to a pawn shop that doesn't want to take the chance on some stolen art. So he takes it to a Greenwich Village street vendor, who believes he may be able to get about $25 a piece for them. Johnny leaves the pictures with him on commission and heads back to tell Kitty the news. Hello, Johnny. Hiya, Tiny. Where'd you get that? Off, Nick. Well, what about my ring? You know how much a good diamond costs? Well, I gave you $900. But you pipe down. You've been telling me what a dope the old guy is. Maybe you're the dope. He told you his paintings are worth a lot of money. Did you check up on his story? What's wrong with it? They're worth just 25 bucks a piece. That's what's wrong with You're crazy. If I weren't a gentleman. Well, don't get sore. Well, then don't tell me I'm crazy. I tell you, the old boy's a phony. His money isn't phony, is it? He could borrow dough or have it stashed away or even steal it. Chris Steele? Jeepers, Johnny, he's not the type. He wouldn't have nerve enough to steal. Well, he didn't get it from his pictures. He may be dumb, but not about art. The day he took me to the museum, he explained how everything was done. You should have heard him. People stood around and listened. There are so many moments within this film where it makes one question who is really playing who. Everyone is working a crafty little angle, which in turn makes one realize that maybe their destined fate is somewhat deserved. Of course, Johnny heads back to the street vendor to collect, cause hey, even if the pictures are worthless, money is money, and it seems to disappear from this bloke's pocket faster than a jackrabbit. To Johnny's surprise, he finds that all of the paintings have been scooped up by a well-known and respected art critic in the city. He heads back to Kitty's apartment to give her the update. <laughs> For cat's sake, what's so funny? You are smarty pants. You're the Mr. Fixit who was going to make a monkey out of poor dopey little kitty. So you gave away two pictures for a couple of dimes and now you can't collect the dimes. Oh, dry up. Jeepers. Now what? What am I going to tell Chris? He won't find out. The heck he won't. That Janeway's a critic. He writes for the newspapers. Ah, 
Golly, you got us in a spot. I told you not to do it. You're just nervous. The old guy who sold him doesn't know me from Adam. Say, give me that drink. I can use it. Chris? Uh-uh. He's got a key. Well, go ahead. See who it is. Hurry up. The phrase cat's sake is my new favorite phrase now. I hope Ben's ready for it. I have to pause here to mention Dan Durier. His character is so unlikable, yet I find him irresistible. He's so fun to watch on the silver screen, Crypt Dwellers. I believe it was this film in particular that introduced me to this crazy cat. And well, after that, I have seen him in a number of noirs and thrillers. He's great. He partnered with Fritz Lang several times, like Joan, and I'm quite positive he will show up on the crypt sometime in the future. (laughs) So these very important artist folks arrive to Kitty's loft and are given the news that it is not a man they are searching for. It is actually a woman, the artist being Kitty. Johnny paints this entire scenario in which Kitty is a bashful artist that hides out in her apartment, toiling away, never showing off her work. That is until he took her paintings to the street vendor to give her, you know, some confidence and prove to her that her work was great, cause well, he's just that swell of a guy. Johnny convinces Kitty to go along with this charade, explaining to her, Well, hey, you always wanted to be an actor, didn't you? And this is her opportunity to play a role of a lifetime. I'm telling you, everyone in this film is an artist in their own way. And well, Kitty starts to play the part. You're crazy to try a thing like this. Cat's sake, I thought they were cops. I know what I'm doing. They don't know from nothing. I can't fool that critic. You always wanted to be an actress. Now's your chance. You've been around the old boy long enough to pick up his lingo. Feed Janeway some of that. I'll get him in here along with you. No, no, wait! I can usually tell whether a canvas has been painted by a man or woman. But you fooled me completely, Miss March. Your work is not only original, it has a masculine force. How long does it take you to paint a picture? Sometimes a day, sometimes a year. You can't tell, it has to grow. Of course. It's a matter of feeling. You know how how feeling grows? It's like, like falling in love, I guess. That's a very good description. The way I look at it, every painting, if it's any good, is a love affair. May I quote that? Oh, no, 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 please don't write about me. After the men depart, Johnny tries to convince Kitty to sign the paintings as her own. They are interrupted, though, when Chris arrives, which leads to a bit of a confrontation, as Chris is not fond of Johnny always hanging around. Kitty demands that Chris leave her alone and just paint. Because, hey, she's going to need more portraits if she intends to have her own art show. Of course, a wrench is thrown into the plan when Chris's wife, Adele, happens to spot one of the paintings in a store window downtown. She rushes home and accuses Christopher of being a fraud. Never being fond of his paintings to begin with, she now has even more of a reason to hate them as she believes Chris was doing nothing but copying another's work. A woman, no less. Catherine March. This scene is 
fascinating. As initially, Chris believes Adele is accusing him of having an affair as she walks in demanding to know who Catherine March is. But then the look of relief when he realizes it's simply a discussion about artwork and that he doesn't have to come clean after all. He stands there perplexed by the situation in this frilly apron holding a butcher knife. And how I so wish he would have plunged that blade into Adele, that would have kept her quiet. Mwah. Of course, Chris needs to find out, in fact, how his paintings did find their way into the storefront window. So he confronts Kitty. How did my pictures get into Delarose's window? Oh, Chris. Don't be angry with me. No, I'm not angry. I just can't understand. It's not possible. Oh, forgive me, darling. I, I needed money. They were going to take the furniture back. It was humiliating. I, I couldn't ask you for more. You've been so generous. I just couldn't. Oh, I saw some pictures. To Delaro? Uh-huh. <laughs> you actually sold those pictures? Uh-huh. Oh, I know I shouldn't have put my name on them, but <laughs> Mr. Delaro wanted to know who painted them, and I, I just couldn't give him your name. No, I can't tell him different. Can I? <laughs> no. <laughs> Funny part is it, it didn't seem to make any difference. Yes, well, the funny part is it made a great deal of difference. If I'd bought those pictures to a man like Delaroy, he wouldn't have taken them. I'm a failure, Kitty. Oh, you're a great painter, Chris. <laughs> Mr. Delaro said so, and so did Mr. Janeway. That is, they say I am. <laughs> well, they're going to keep on saying it. Oh, Chris. Oh, now, don't. Don't, Kitty. Now, don't cry. I'm happy. Why, it's just like a dream. Oh. Chris is so good, so kind. Well, what difference does it make whose name is on those pictures, yours or mine? Why, it's just like we were married. <laughs> Only I take your name. This is yet another scene that I find to be incredibly heartbreaking and uncomfortable. The line when Chris says, It is like we are married. For cat's sake, Chris. From here, the story really picks up speed. We have the return of Adele's ex-husband, who actually didn't die at all, and instead seemed to be faking his death. Kitty's artwork has become a sensation, and Johnny is living high off the hog, pouring bubbly, driving a new car, and sporting the fanciest of clothes. Of course, it was only a matter of time for everyone's con to go sideways. With the return of Adele's husband, and Chris not legally being married to Adele, he goes to tell Kitty the great news only to find her in Johnny's slimy arms. Johnny! Oh, Johnny. Lazy legs. Jeepers, I love you. What's that? Chris? Johnny, is it Chris? Call him quick. Chris! Chris! I ought to push you over on your head. How'd I know he was coming here tonight? I don't understand it. You don't understand anything. Well, why get sore at Well, what me? use are my brains if I'm tied up with a dumb clerk like you? I told you to watch your step, didn't I? That's right. Blame it on me. Oh, why'd you keep me here tonight? I didn't want to stay. Johnny, don't talk like that. Well, it's the truth. I'm fed up with you. Johnny! That's the only thing you ever understood. I'm through with you. 
oh, Fritz Lang, how you love to rip out my heart and smash it on the ground and then step on it profusely. I know Kitty is a charlatan, and she did a horrible thing playing with Chris's emotions, but wow, I don't believe she deserves Johnny. After this entire incident, Johnny gives her a piece of his mind and essentially leaves because the gig is up and there's no other reason to stay with her now, and he gives her a slap as he walks out the door. Meanwhile, Chris, well, he's at some corner bar somewhere drinking his pain away. All the while, the voices of Johnny and Kitty play on repeat like a broken record in his mind. It is absolutely haunting. Jeepers, I love you, Johnny. Jeepers, I love you, Johnny. The use of audio is so effective here and is actually used throughout the end of the film. But what makes this scene even more effective is the acting from Eddie G. Now here's the thing, goblins and ghouls. I could tell you how this thing ends, but I really think you should watch this one for yourself to find out. Because as with most noirs, it takes a twist down a windy road. And I don't want to ruin this thrilling adventure for you. I will say this though, be prepared for a trip to Bleaksville. Because like most Lang pictures, this doesn't end well. I will, however, play this final clip from Kitty March, because here is where the claws truly come out, and Joan's acting is on fire. Also, though, I'm not gonna lie, I truly love to leave you hanging. Mwah. You lied to me, Kitty. It was him, wasn't it? Can I help it if I'm in love? No, just an infatuation. You, you couldn't love a man like that, Kitty. He's evil. He wouldn't let you alone, isn't that right? I wanted to kill him. Well, that's wrong. Why'd you come here? To ask you to marry me. What about your wife? I haven't any wife. That's finished. But can't say to My husband don't... turned up. I'm free. <laughs> oh, now, <laughs> don't cry, Kitty. I know how you feel, but that's all over now. We all make mistakes. I don't care what's happened. I, I can marry you now. I, I want you to be my wife. We, we'll go away together, way far off, so you can forget this other man. Don't cry, Kitty. Please don't cry. <laughs> I'm not crying, you fool. I'm laughing. Kitty. <laughs> oh, you idiot. How can a man be so dumb? Kitty. <laughs> laugh in your face ever since I first met you. You're old and ugly and I'm sick of you. Sick, sick, sick. Kitty, for heaven's sake. You killed Johnny? I'd like to see you try. Why, he'd break every bone in your body. He's a man. You don't want to marry me? You? Get out of here. Get out. Scarlet Street was said to be one of Fritz Lang's personal favorite films. It received mixed reviews at the box office. As I said earlier, I find it to be a wonderfully made film, but not one that I enjoy to revisit. The acting is superb, but the story? Well, it is a punch in the stomach and takes a piece of life from me every time I watch it. When the film opened, it was apparently banned in New York, Milwaukee, and Atlanta for being too profane, obscure, and contrary to the good order of the community. 
Today, the film finds itself in the public domain as the original copyright holder failed to renew it. So it's not banned anywhere. It's actually readily available to watch. I hope you enjoyed this episode, Goblins and Ghouls. I personally recommend picking up a Blu-ray copy of the movie from Kino Lorber. Despite it being freely available, beware, as there are many copies on the internet that are of subpar quality. In my next episode, I will continue the series of crafty, cunning, conniving charlatans and spotlight yet another motion picture that features the swindling ways of another of my favorite Hollywood con artists. My second entry, I will uncover the corpse of Tyrone Power and be joined by my fellow classic coroner, Vampirous cousin, Dr. Ashley Jane Carruthers, to autopsy character corpse, Helen Walker, in the 1947 noir drama, Edmund Goulding's Nightmare Alley. Hope you tune in. Until then, please make sure to subscribe and follow the show on social media, and tell other goblins and ghouls. And hey, don't be a stranger, crypt dwellers. I want to know what you think. Drop your favorite little gravedigger a line at cinematiccrypt at gmail.com. If you have a suggestion for the show or a corpse you want me to dig up, let me know. You can also reach me on Twitter and Instagram at cinematiccrypt or via postal mail. I will always write back and include a personalized epitaph. You can send your letters to attention, movie John, and that's M-O-V-I-E, J-A-W-N, P.O. Box 20172, Philadelphia, PA, 19145. Shout out to my Canadian film pal and fellow classic coroner, Dr. Ashley Jane Carruthers, for providing and creating a lot of the tunes that you hear on this program. Also thanks to fellow movie genre, the Hollywood hunk, Hugo Marmuji, for the rad Cinematic Crypt logo. And if you can't get enough of my soothing voice, make sure to check out some of my other pods, such as I Saw It in a Movie and Best Friends Forever, both part of the Movie John Podcast Network. All of these shows, including Cinematic Crypt, can be found on moviejohn.com under MJ Pods. MovieJohn.com is also where you can subscribe to our quarterly print movie publication. Each quarter, we select a theme and feature flicks and artwork related to that theme. Our summer 2021 issue will soon be available for pre-order, featuring a beautiful cover design of Paul Newman from art director Hugo Marmuji in celebration of our theme, At the Raceway. Make sure to visit MovieJohn.com shop to subscribe and ensure that this issue finds its way into your mailbox. Or pick up some of our back issues while you are there. Mwah. Good night, sweetheart. Well, it's time to go Good night, sweetheart. Well, it's time to go I hate to leave you, but I really It is now time to close the coffin, and here I leave you to rest with my latest epitaph, my tombstone quote, compliments of Kitty March. Who do you think you are, my guardian angel? Goblins and ghouls, I don't want someone looking over my shoulder when I'm out ghosting, so 
back off. Goodbye, film pals. Here, baby. Uh,